Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become more real to us because we believe the more real they are, the more we can apply them to our lives, and we need to draw all the power out of them that we can. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm so happy to have with me today my my guest, and I can't believe we haven't had him on before. This is Dr. Daniel Belknap, uh, who I call Dan, I think most people do, Um Dan and I actually went to the same high school, though we didn't really know each other there. Uh, We were just a year apart, and then uh, we were roommates in Jerusalem, and he went on. I think we got our uh, both of our master's are from the Engineering Studies program at BYU, but then he uh, went to the University of Chicago and Northwest Semitic, specializes in a language called Ugaritic, which when I was taking that language, my roommates always tease me they said does that sound like you're an idiot is that what that language is what but anyway uh it's an obscure but very actually important uh language and culture it's where we know more about canaanites than anything else and dan uh also specializes in in ritual theory and studies and what i love about dan is he just has a fresh way of looking at everything uh he doesn't uh, just go with the status quo he's going to take a second look at everything and so it, it's just wonderful so uh welcome to the program dan Thank uh you. Yeah. What else should we know about you? Uh, you have a wonderful boy. wife and family, I know. I do. Uh, I do. Uh, I've got uh, my beautiful wife, Erin, and then we have four kids, right? And they're scattered across about a uh, three years apart, each one of them. One of them's uh, down there. She's finishing up BYU. Uh, my boy, Jack, he's 19. Sam is 16 and Tabitha is 13. So we're all doing pretty good. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. And uh, yeah, Dan's just fun. Okay. So, hold on. Before we get going, I want to remind our audience that we're trying to help as many people as possible hear what we're trying to do here. Uh, We're sharing the word. We're trying to bless lives. And the more people we bless, the better. And so one of the ways that you can help us is that uh, the, the platforms find a way of pushing this to more people. If you are doing things like liking it, uh, commenting or downloading or leaving reviews or stars and sharing uh, any of those things that you can do. Uh, the more of that you do, the more people hear this and the more people we can help. And so uh, my guests and I are doing our part to help, but you can have, have a part you can do as well. So we hope you'll jump in with us yeah. on that. Uh, all right. Well, we're studying the book of Hebrews today. Well, uh, I mean, we can talk about the whole book as to some degree that that might be helpful. But in particular, we're doing chapters one through six. Uh, but we will just go wherever we end up going. So, Dan, uh, where would you like to go? What's made this real for you? And and uh, what would you like to talk about? You know, for me, um, that, that's a great question. It's a bit harder for me to dive into this. But what I think what I love most about the book of Hebrews is that it seems to indicate um, an early Christian experience. And what I can say is uh, so some work that I've been doing uh, more in the restoration is the book of Hebrews influenced Joseph Smith a lot more than we think. I mean, there's aspects of the book of Hebrews that is um, um, absolutely essential to understanding section 76, for instance, uh, the, the, uh, as he rolls out the temple beginning in about 1836 and, and forward things that it has to say about the priesthood, things it has to say about our relationship with um of prophets and saints from past dispensations and the way they interact with us. It's crazy to me that in a lot of these places, the book of Hebrews is text that Joseph Smith goes to. In fact, there's a, I know we're dealing with one through six, but the passage in Hebrews 12 almost becomes, um, at least in my mind, a passage of scripture that defines Joseph's ministerial efforts 
really from 1832 on all the way to 1844. He's going to reference it in 1832. It's in section 76. It shows up in uh, pieces of 1835, 36, 39, 41, 42, 43, and 44. Wow. Okay. So now that you've said that, we have to at least look at what that verse sure. is. Uh, so, uh, and that's what I, I mean, we're, we want to study all of scripture. We, we don't have to be tied just to whatever it was for this week. Right. So tell us where we're at. Chapter 12. So we're in chapter 12 and interesting. This is another reason why I like it because it fits into the old Testament. And so we have this experience that Joseph uses to describe what the saints should be having themselves. And yet it seems to be a reception history of an event in the old Testament, which ends up defining the book of Hebrews as a whole. So, so it's, it's a bit of a convoluted answer, but I really find the, the ways in which all of these things are connected work nicely. It begins in about verse 18, the, the, the whole passage. So if we look in chapter 12, verse 18, it alludes to an event, and it appears to allude to the event that's described in Exodus 19 and 20, when Israel gets to Sinai for the first time following Egypt, and they're given the opportunity to see God, right? So he Moses goes up the mountain, God says, go down and ask Israel if they're willing to follow my covenant. He goes down, Israel says, yeah, that sounds awesome that we get to be a kingdom of priests, uh, a holy nation, right? All that stuff you probably talked about with Exodus 19. And then the Lord says, okay, that's great. Tell you what, get ready in three days, I'm coming down, right? And in three days, you will come up the mountain and, and see me. Well, those three days pass, Israel refuses that, and 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 you get this whole, it's the provocation. It's what Jacob in the Book of Mormon refers to as the provocation of Israel. And, is, and, and we get provocation being referred to a bit in Hebrews, right? Yeah, so, that's yeah. exactly right. In fact, like I said, these things kind of all combine. There is an experience that's being described in the Book of Hebrews that the writer of Hebrews believes the early Christians should be having, and that Joseph Smith then believes the saints should be having. So hmm. I think what we're looking at is, it a, is an experience with the divine, with God in the divine world, that just holds true across all dispensations. So we're seeing early Christianity looking back to an Old Testament experience, and Joseph Smith saying it should define our experience as well. And that's that's really what I love about the book of Hebrews. So- uh, Keep going, keep going. No. So in chapter 12, you've got this, you've got this experience, you've got this illusion. So beginning in verse 18, it alludes back to this, the mountain that burned with fire, the dark cloud, the voice of God that spoke, of which you can see in verse 20, they could not endure that which was commanded. And in verse 19 asked, you go up for us, Moses, let us not hear the word of God. That's straight out of Exodus 20. So this is the event we're referring to. Right. And I but, think it is this, like you said, they were getting ready and then they saw the glory of God on the mountain and, and it was too much for them. They were afraid they couldn't survive that. They were afraid they they wouldn't be able to survive. And uh, and so, and, and that's again, what I think Jacob's referring to in Jacob 1 verse 7, when he talks about, we did everything we could to prepare our people to come unto Christ, partake of his goodness and enter into his rest, which rest, right? And, and you get the rest of it. That's that's provocation stuff of which we're yeah. taught more about in section 84 of the Dr. Cummins. Right. And but it's, again, case, a big theme here in the book of Hebrews, the idea of coming huge, into the rest of God. Yeah. Huge. In fact, you'll see it, we can go back and cover it, but that's chapters three and four, where yeah. this event is alluded to again by virtue of using uh, Psalm 93, which talks right. about that event. Yeah. And then you get chapter four that opens and says, I worry now, I'm paraphrasing what chapter four, verse one says, but the writer says, now we ought to be worried ourselves because we've been given the same promise. And we might fall short of it, just like ancient Israel did. 
Uh, and chapter four ends with them entering into the presence of God, right? Through Christ, the great high priest, he makes it possible for us to approach the throne of grace. So right. it, it's at least in my mind, the writer of Hebrews is looking at that event and saying, this is what we've been promised. We can have the same experience. And so we better not screw it up just like ancient Israel, ancient Israel did. And then we get Joseph Smith who starts alluding to the same stuff here in chapter 12. So with that, notice that in verse 22, it picks up with the writer saying, okay, your experience isn't supposed to be that Sinai experience. You're not going to get to the mountain and then withdraw yourself, right? Instead, you're to come unto Mount Zion, under the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better than things of that of Abel. In other words, the writer is saying, you're meant to engage with these divine communities, for lack of a better term. You're not just going to go, supposed to go to a mountain and then back off and maybe, maybe hear a voice. You're meant to engage with these communities, including communion with God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, which is one of the spiritual blessings promised in section 107. Mm. So, so uh, along with this church of the firstborn and, and when you read closely of section 76, those who retain celestial glory don't just become parts of these communities because these exact same groups, the general assembly and church of the firstborn spirits of adjustment made perfect. This, these communities are mentioned in 76 as what you become when you obtain celestial glory, but it even has a sense in there. It suggests you don't get celestial glory without interacting with those communities. Yeah. So not only do you become a part of the community, you've got to interact with the community. And that's the experience that Hebrews 12 seems to be mentioning. You're not called to a Mount Sinai experience. You're called to a Mount Zion experience where you engage with these communities and become a part of them. Good. Very good. And uh, 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 yeah, and Zion also has, you know, temple uh, overtones oh, yeah. and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, which right. is what Sinai had as well. So, yeah, in fact, I would say this is great because in some ways you ha this is just a fantastic overview, I think, of the book. And you... Uh, well, I should say right now, Dr. Bill Knapp is uh, uh, teaching the course at, at BYU on the second half of the, the New Testament. He's taught it plenty of times. I've actually never taught it. Uh, Wait, I, I'm going to interrupt right there. You've never taught the second half of the New Testament? Acts through no, Revelation? No, and uh, that just doesn't get assigned to me for one thing. Uh, wow. But anyway, uh, they have me teaching Isaiah and whatever else. But I'll teach it one day before I'm I'm dead. But anyway, um, just hasn't happened. But um, I was going to say in my so you correct me if I'm wrong, you've taught this more than I have. But in, in my view, one of the major themes of Hebrews is uh, it seems like it's a community that's experiencing some persecution. And, and the author, whether that's Paul or whoever it is, um, is a little worried that they're turning away from the faith. And so he, he, he provides examples of Israel when they haven't remained faithful. And then he provides examples of people who have remained faithful, especially in chapter 11, but but elsewhere, Melchizedek and others, and says uh, the, the warning is, let's not be like that one group. Let's be like the faithful group. And then here in chapter 12, he's, he's showing, even though this is a story of when they, they didn't make it, he's showing how they can overcome and make it by following the example of, of those who were faithful uh, uh, and that that's what they need to do. So it seems to me like that's part of what he's talking about. And then, as you said, that, of course, is a theme for Joseph Smith as well. 
Well, yeah. And so Hebrews 13, for instance, the very end of it tells you what type of letter this is, or at least the writer writes it. He says, verse 22 says, I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I've written a letter unto you in few words. It's an exhortation, right? This, yeah. is, this isn't just some dry history of the way in which the Old Testament testifies of Christ. It's it's meant to exhort the early saints to do something. And whether it's persecution or whether it's um, uh, apathy or whatever it is, uh, there, it, the book seems to be a reminder to to that community, to that early Christian community. This is what the experience could be, right? This is what you could have. You could have, you could have an experience with the divine world that is really unparalleled. And for me, that's actually one of the most beautiful things our church offers. Right? Sometimes we get caught up. Again, I'm not knocking this and. Who knows? Maybe let's get it added out later. But there's sometimes I think we just get caught up in the monotony of good living, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. and kind of forget sometimes what exactly are those great and incredible promises that are ours. But often when I teach Hebrews, um, I'll allude to, and and, uh, and this is where I'm going to show my weakness. I don't remember conference report years as well as I should. But yeah. if you remember President Uchtdorf, then President Uchtdorf, gave that great um, uh, parable of the cruise ship, right? Oh, in yeah. fact, I think he yeah. referred to it as the parable of the cruise ship. In that, he talked about, and it was interesting because in the parable, it relates someone who's always wanted to go on a cruise, goes on the cruise, but spends all the time in the cabin, right? And never comes out, never takes of the fruit, never takes partakes of the any of the entertainment, never goes off the boat. And when he's leaving, the captain sees him and says, Oh, you've been here the whole time. Why, why didn't we see you? And the guy's like, I, I didn't have enough money to afford all that. And the captain said, Well, that comes free with the cruise, right? And elder and elder Uchtdorf at the time said, I worry sometimes that we don't recognize the great and powerful promises that are given to us. In fact, he used the term spiritual blessings. Well, that's the exact same term that's mentioned in Doctrine and Covenants 107, that the Melchizedek priesthood holds all the keys and authority to these spiritual blessings of the church, right? And those spiritual blessings, just uh, because we're kind of off on that, those spiritual blessings are the following. To have the privilege of receiving the mysteries of the kingdom, this is verses 18 and 19 of section 107, to have the privilege of receiving the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, to have the heavens open unto them, to commune with the general assembly and church of the firstborn, and enjoy the communion and presence of God the Father and Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. I'm always struck by this because that's clearly part of our canon. But when was the last time we had a real discussion about the fulfillment of those incredible promises? Hmm. Why don't we? Point towards. I mean, what's the worst that happens that you don't have those, right? But yeah. why not work for him? And that's yeah. what that, that's what gets me about this. And, and and Joseph Smith sees the same thing in 1843. Okay, he's just rolled out the endowment to a select group of leadership, and he's getting ready to kind of introduce it to the church as a whole. And he gives this great sermon, which gets written down in whatever the periodical is for 1843. I want to say the evening and morning star, but I think it's the times and seasons, times and seasons, right. Times and seasons. But in September and October of 1843, he pens an article for that, which is called the mysteries of godliness. And he ends up writing about 
you know, the, the power of ordinances. And if people understood what ordinances do, what they reveal about what he calls the economy of God from 1832. And, and, and then ends up quoting these verses from Hebrews and tells the saints, we're not living up to those promises. I, I think sometimes we don't think about what this means. Right. And, 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 or believes that it could ever happen to us. I, I I look at, for instance, Hebrews chapter 11, which goes into faith and goes into the faith of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and talks about that very principle, right? They, they exercised faith and saw things by virtue of that faith. And Peter deals with the same idea. You've got to learn how to see afar off. Isaiah talks about this. You can live your life in such a manner that you can see the king and all his beauty and the far off lands. This, these individuals have seen things and, and see that this cosmos is much bigger than our just daily life, right? Mm -hmm. And that this can define us. This can, this can define who we are, help us achieve what we're meant to be. And we're meant to be gods. That's what we're meant to be. And I think sometimes we forget that. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I love what you're saying. Like, I actually like your phrase, the monotony of of just good living. Like, it almost feels like sometimes we we see we're, we're living on some plains or something. We see this beautiful, incredible mountain ahead of us, that and that's where we want to get to. So we get on the road, and then we put it on cruise control, and we mm -hmm. just keep looking at the asphalt in front of us instead of looking at the, the the what we're really trying to get to this beautiful vista right and the cruise control takes over and right. and we're we're on the monotony of the straight road um and uh i think we live beneath some of our privileges as a result of not remembering that this is what is available to us and this is is what god is trying to give us that, that was elder uchtdorf's admonition to us right yeah. the, the the person in the cruise ship the person in the cabin isn't doing anything wrong they're just yeah. not living up to the privileges and advantages that they have available on a cruise. Yeah. And, and to Elder Uchtdorf, I just think he's like, why not? Uh, I'll take it even to a, a, an extreme end of this. Um, one of the things I sometimes quote in the August 1999 enzyme, uh, President Faust gave the first presidency address when we used to have an enzyme and we used to have yeah. a first presidency address. Yeah. He had back one, in those he, days. Back in those days. The article is entitled... Um, spiritual horizons, maybe even lost horizons, because he he loosely bases it around his his discourse around the movie Lost Horizons, if you've ever seen that show. There's one in the 70s and then a, a remake. It, what it is, it describes a group of people who find Shangri-La, who get lost up in the mountains, Himalayas, find Shangri-La. They're there in Shangri-La for, for a time, and then some of them get tired of paradise and want to leave, right? It's kind of like the manna story from the Old Testament. So they leave, and, and at that point, they want to try to get back in. Right. Once they're out, but now they can't find the entrance. So they try to find it at the end. I think one person crosses over horizon, sees something in the distance glimmering and then goes to it and finds Shangri-La. In any case, President Faust said there are horizons that we as the saints can have spiritual horizons that we ought to be aware of. It's the same principle of um, that Peter mentioned. Can you see afar off? And he mentions those. And on one of them, I want to say on the top of page three is one he calls spiritual excellence. And in that paragraph, he has the following. He says, I'm paraphrasing because, of course, I don't have this right in front of me and I wasn't planning on talking about this at all. But he said the following, I would surmise that all members of this church have a desire to see the face of the Savior. 
This is an available blessing, but too few of us catch sight of this horizon as we fail to avail ourselves of all of God's promises. Uh. Now, that was in an enzyme, right? Sometimes, I, I think sometimes maybe the listeners are like, oh, no, no, you guys are going into deep doctrine. And I'm like, this isn't deep doctrine. This is outright playing in our canon and being mentioned in enzymes, right? I, and what always strikes me about that uh, that quote is that I don't know if President Faust is right. Now, I'm not saying that he's wrong, but what it, the way it says, I would surmise that all members of this church have a desire to see the faith of the Savior. I don't know if that's true. I don't know how many members think about it or concern themselves with that type of an encounter or interaction. I, I just simply don't know. What it does tell me is that from President Faust's perspective, he has no idea. It just It's unfathomable that the saints wouldn't have that as a goal. I, th- I think that's right. Yeah, that's, you know that's what, what I'm saying? saying. Like, what, doesn't everyone want this? Right? What's yeah. the worst that happens? You don't see it? I mean, come on. I, I just, yeah. he's just like, I, I have to assume every saint wants that. That tells me more about President Faust, who believes that he could. Yeah. Yep. Oh, but we good. don't, as he phrases it there, but we don't avail ourselves of all of God's promises. It's, it's Elder Uchtdorf's parable story. It's, it's, Peter's admonition to see afar off, and it's the entire book of Hebrews. This was a promise given to ancient Israel. They failed in that. They rejected it. And now I fear, as he says again in chapter 4, verse 1, lest we, having given the promise, will fall short of it too. That's good. Yeah, and that theme of uh, seeing afar off, we won't get into it. We could get into that for a long time, but uh, uh, that's a theme I'd say in the book of Jerem and in Enoch's vision and so on. Uh, uh, the, the Lord's pretty serious about us keeping our eyes on that uh, heavenly goal and and things, seeing things with that eternal uh, perspective and uh, godly goals, I guess I could say, godly right. possibilities. Uh, and we often just are so myopic uh, in looking at it from the world's point of view. So, And I well, love how you tied it into to Hebrews 4. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, and and just to, and I'll and I'll say one last thing on this, just because I do love it, and I and I do think about this a lot. Alma in Alma chapter five, right? We get done with the have you had your image in his countenance or whatever that yeah. is, as I paraphrase it. But that same verse then says, "Do you see with an eye of faith? Do yeah. you see your corruption put on incorruption, your mortality put on incor- immortality? Do you see with an eye of faith?" And and a verse later he says. Can you imagine unto yourselves God saying, enter in, ye blessed? And I'm struck by this, and I think Alma's talking about a principle. Do you see with an eye of faith your resurrected body? When was the last time you thought about what it's like, for instance, to have a resurrected body? What could you do with a resurrected body? I joke around with my students, and I've talked about it with my kids. I, I'm excited to get a resurrected body. I, I want to know, with a resurrected immortal body, could I survive a black hole? <laughs> that's right. not a question i've asked myself no, but, yep, see, but good, I, good good question get a resurrected body i'm jumping in one taking my boys with me we already talked about this right <laughs> I, can can i mess with people's if we become divine beings that community what is that like can i can i mess with worlds carrie you and i have known each other it, could i distract you in some fashion and have my boys mess with the tectonic plates of your planet or whatever you're doing so that when your world obtains satellite technology, they look down at the mountain range and the tops of it spells out Dan was here. 
How would that throw off the theology of that world? Right? This is Dan yep. thinking. Yep. Yep. I'm telling you, I, I don't know. And that's kind of, you know, a flippant behavior. But at the same time, yeah. why not think about it? Joseph Smith yeah. says, your minds ought to ascend to the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Right? I don't. Alma suggests that that eye of faith is as much tied to your imagination as anything else, right? Can you imagine it yourselves through the eye of faith, these things happening? And I just, I don't think we take into account the power of imagination in our faith development as much as we could. And yet that's what all of this stuff is about. That's good. That's good. All right. So is there uh, something in particular in these first few chapters that uh, you'd like to focus on that furthers that theme or or has another thing? Or wh- where would you like to go? Well, one of them for me is, um, I mean, there's just a lot in Hebrews. And unfortunately, I only take a day with my students to do Hebrews, too. I, I can't do yeah. it justice, right? Yeah. Um, some of it is, is I think there's an element in Hebrews 1 that ties us back to el- uh, aspects of Abraham chapter 3. But I think I want to go to chapter 2 for just a second. Because chapters one and two set up the um, preeminence of Christ. But that's really the focus. One is really talking about like how he's even greater than angels. Right. right. And and you can see both Nephi and Old Testament uh, teachings letting us know, well, angels give us the word of God. And so uh, that's really saying something. So, all right, that's enough for chapter one. (laughs) That's exactly right. So so he sets that up that Christ is Christ was chosen from the beginning. Right, that he is mm-hmm. he's preeminent. And in the book of Hebrews, like like I said, if it's got his primary theme for this experience, the secondary theme that goes with it is that experience is made possible thanks to Jesus Christ. Yes. Yeah. Right. It is Christ who is the author and the finisher of our faith. That's described in Hebrews. He's described as our great high priest, the one who goes into the holiest of places first and makes it possible for us to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Right? In fact, really, that that's the theme is don't miss out on the blessings that Christ has made available to you. So come that's to exactly right. That is exactly right. So so whatever the audience is, the writer of Hebrews uh, is trying to make the case that this Old Testament experience can be yours. And it was only possible then and only possible now through Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So chapters one and two set up the preeminence of Christ. But in so, there's a, there's a small section in chapter two that I think encapsulates the plan of salvation beautifully and gives some um, possible interpretations that I think are just profound. So right, I'll begin, I'll begin, yeah, I'll begin here, verse nine. So again, we're dealing with Christ and it says, but we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. So it's simply pointing out Christ is preeminent, but he's going to be made mortal right? Crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory, sons and daughters unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, sometimes when I go through this, I tell the students, you've got to follow the pronouns and follow them correctly. Yeah. Right. And it's tricky in a number of places in Hebrew. <laughs> That's exactly right. So verse 10 is one of those. Verse 9, the subject is clearly about Christ. Yeah. Verse 10 opens with this almost uh, secondary explanation, for it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. Now, normally, we'd often say that's Jesus Christ. But the context of that verse is it's God the Father. Mm -hmm. It is God the Father who has all things and by whom are all things. 
right? And you can tell that by virtue of what that being does in bringing many sons into glory. That's the plan of salvation. If my work and my glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, there it is in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, right? To the one who made all things, who put all of this into place in the first place, God the Father, to make as many sons and daughters of God as possible, it required him to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, the captain of our salvation- That's talking about, well, sorry, go ahead, yeah. No, go for it. You're right. No, 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 no. Go, keep going. The captain of their salvation is Christ. Yeah. Yeah, there, right. it can't be anyone else, right? Right. And that's how you know that the first part is the father because he's doing something to the son. That's exactly right. Make him the captain. Yeah. And th- and that's an important part of the plan of salvation, isn't it? That God, mm-hmm. this is this has always been God the Father's plan. Sometimes we we talk about these two plans that were in the premortal existence, but the truth is there's only been one plan. And Christ agreed to that plan, right? It yep. was the adversary who rebelled against that plan. But this was the plan, and it was the plan that God the Father gave, yep. right? And, it, and Christ makes it so clear consistently in his mortal ministry yep. that he's just there to do the Father's plan or the Father's will. And and I think this verse encapsulates in many ways what Christ said like a hundred times, uh, in, in especially in John, but throughout the Gospels. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Christ did that. Abraham 3 talks about God's ministerial work and premortality who taught this plan and all of these things. So verse 10 is the summation of this kind of plan of salvation. Because the plan was to create individuals who could receive an inheritance, divine inheritance, he made the perfect of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Right, the, the captain of their salvation. Yeah. The captain of their salvation, yeah. So, perfect through their sufferings. Now, what's interesting about that is verse 9 then, which is about Christ, has a fun little detail in which we learn that there, Christ experienced the grace of God. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, we tend mm-hmm. to think of Christ's grace, right? It, it, it's Christ's grace who saves us. Paul, Paul talks about that, right? One of my favorite verses in Galatians, which talks about Christ's faith in us or our faith in Christ. And we, and we recognize that Christ provides grace. But verse 9 suggests that Christ was able to perform the atonement through the grace of God the Father. And and Christ himself a specific number of times that the power he has uh, over death and everything else is power that God gave him. Yep. All right. So yep. it's God's power. Christ does end up with the power, but it's by the grace of God that he has that power. That's exactly right. And so and so just on its all side, this is one of the things I love about Hebrews. It really does a nice job of supporting all of these things that you found elsewhere in the teachings of Christ. Yeah. They know they know both him and the Old Testament text well. I agreed. And I I'm trying to maybe you'll remember where uh Hebrews has somewhere in it and I'm just frustrated with myself that I can't find it right now but the, one of the best verses ever of this idea that I think Christ is trying to teach so often but it maybe is summed up best in Hebrews where basically it says that that Christ reveals the father to us um so if I if I find it well as we're going along I'll, I'll highlight it but I think that's one of the things that we're learning as we look at this we don't see the father too much we see the son but what he's teaching us here is that the son is just doing what the father gave him to do. And, and thus we learn about the father by seeing the son. Right. And, and, and I, I don't know about that reference off the top of my head either. I, I'm sure it's in there. What you do find in Hebrews are plenty of places where Christ leads us to the father. Yeah. In fact, at the end of chapter four, we're going to see an, a beautiful image 
of what Christ as our high priest makes possible. If Christ is the high priest, then the high priest brings you into the presence of God. And that's exactly what you see in Hebrews 4. Uh, but in this case, so it goes, it continues on. So Christ, the captain of our salvation, is made perfect through sufferings thanks to the grace of God. And then you get verse 11. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. Now, what exactly that means, it's intriguing. Normally we would go, because we're back to our pronouns, right? For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified. Who's the he? Well, the immediate precedent to this was, of course, Christ. And Christ does sanctify us, right? Through mm -hmm. his, through, our salvation is made perfect, or the, the captain of salvation is perfect through his sufferings. And it is sufferings that allow us to be sanctified. We're, we're clearly they who are sanctified. But the overall context of verses 9 and 10 suggests that that he, in verse 11, might in fact be God the Father. And that Christ is one of the ones whom he sanctifies. Right. Yep. Right. And that fits a theme, in fact, that we've followed a number of times in, in this podcast, especially, again, as we're going through the book of John, that you have this idea that that God sends Christ, uh, Christ sends us, we bring people to Christ, he brings them to God, right? So that would have as part of it that as Christ sanctifies us, that's because God sanctified him or made mm -hmm. him. We get that in section 93, he went from grace to grace and so on. That's, again, suggesting that God is the one who made it possible for Christ to become this so that Christ makes it possible for us to become that. That's exactly right. And, and and with that, I think Hebrews maybe this is a place where it might be pushing back on an idea that's now beginning to pop up in early Christianity, which is namely that God, God the Father at least, and Jesus Christ to some degree, are completely different types of being than humanity is. And by virtue of that are in realms that you never really can engage with. So right. I, I mentioned earlier that one way to look at this is that there's, there's different communities and that the book of Hebrews is showing that you can engage with these communities, these divine communities. Well, one of those communities would be God himself, right? In meeting and engaging, interacting with God. But Certainly by the second and third century, Christianity is going to believe God's a completely different type of being and that therefore there's no real way you can truly relate to him. He, he's in his own sphere, right? Yeah. Christ is the bridge that was between those two. But even, even if we take advantage of the atonement of Christ, we are never, ever the same type of being as God and never will be the same type of being as God. That's why he's unknowable. That's why he's right a mystery. That's why all of these termino this terminology that shows up over the next millennia or so begins to appear because of this idea. Well, Hebrews seems to be pushing back on that by pointing out that he who sanctifieth, whoever that is, let's go with God the Father in this case, and they who are sanctified are all one, yeah. right? They're one community. This, this distinction that you want to make between different divine communities, and this is the highest you can ever achieve, and you'll never be with God, Hebrews is like, that's just simply not true. This whole plan is about becoming one community, right? Which has such strong ties with the intercessory prayer, right? I mean, sure. one of the things I love about the author of Hebrews, Paul or whoever it is, um, he knows other scripture uh, and whether John 
17 has been written or not. He knows about that prayer. I mean, he's drawing on Old Testament all the time. And I would recommend to our readers, just when you're reading and seeing the footnotes, oh, he's quoting this, go and read the actual Old Testament passage. If if you have the time to do it, it will help you understand this better. But I think we also see him drawing on Christ's teachings in the New Testament very strongly. This is a, a, an incredibly scripturally based epistle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very much so. And, and I love the idea that they've established just off that intercessory prayer that you can be one, right? Yeah. This, this Zion, that's ultimately what we're talking about. The word Zion doesn't really show up much in the New Testament, but the concept that you, it certainly is Latter-day Saints, the concept of a Zion of a people who are one heart, one mind, that's a community bound by oneness. That's what he's talking about here, right? Yeah. Yep. And that God God doesn't see this distinction. I, I like this for another reason. This gives us an insight into maybe how God the Father sees things. And I know that sounds a little weird because that would seem to be the whole scriptures, but I always give uh, this type of an example. Um, separations of space and, and their significance are always relative. In other words, when I'm in a classroom, I have them look at the different the two walls and go, if I lined you up on one wall and asked you to walk across to the other wall, that's a space that you're walking across. And it's going to take you maybe two, three seconds to do so. It's not a huge space, but it's noticeable here. Those walls, right? Right. But if I put you all up on the Y, up on Y Mountain, what happens to this space between these two walls? It's just gone, Right. And if I put you up on the moon, what happens to your understanding of that space? Now, eternity is unbelievably long. And I get within my mortal sphere that the divide between me and God seems vast and immense, right? Just huge. We're talking eons of time, whatever, of development, growth. But eternity is a long time and much longer than an eon of time. Yeah. And God sees from an eternal perspective. I think there are times that it might be of value to recognize that God sees from an eternal perspective where the space between us and him isn't actually there the same way we experience the space between us and him. And and it explains the plan. Sometimes I hear people talk about the engagement of the plan as we're like little children, right? In fact, I had uh, an individual talk about once used an analogy of her son who was playing football in a hot August day and they barely lost the game and he's red and flushed. It's like two in the afternoon. It's brutal, just brutal. And she's like, I think I know how Holy Father feels. He just wants to pull us into his arms and hold us close. And I get that analogy. I really do. But from an eternal perspective, we're not little infants. We're equals. And that's what Joseph Smith began to suggest near the end of his ministry, right? That God sees from an eternal perspective. And in that eternal sense, we're equals, not in power and might, because we haven't developed, but we are equals in terms of existence and the the nature of our beings. Yes. And God tends to treat us that way in this plan. This plan does not treat us like little children. It treats us like equals. It expects us to be able to think ultimately on the same level that God does. And and I think this is what, so uh, this, to me this is kind of mind blowing stuff and I hope everyone can can follow but if there's anyone I'm going to do mind blowing stuff with it's it's going to be you Dan but um, I I think sometimes we struggle with well I I think all the time we struggle with because of our current state some yep. ideas that are important uh, one of which is 
uh, time and God, or I would prefer to say the lack of time and God. I think God is a being who doesn't experience time. Uh, so just as an example, when Moses or Enoch see a vision where they see everything, if they see that vision in real time, they'd still be having that vision right now, yep. right? Yep. Instead, in a moment, which is the wrong term, but it's the term I have, in a moment, they see all of everything, right? And uh, that's because that's how God exists. It's how he experiences things. So if we're going to be be eternal beings like God, which I believe we are, then at this moment, I'm actually already like that. But I'm also at this moment because we do measure time, right? You have these scriptures, time yeah. only is measured under man, because we do measure time. I'm experiencing a finite existence as a being that becomes infinite. And so I have an infinite existence and a finite existence. There's times where I wonder if I'm not looking at me and saying, uh, well, I'd like to take me into my arms, but you know, you know, like you might, if you were looking at a video of you when you were younger and you thought this was such a big deal and you're like, eh, no, that, that, that wasn't anything. Um, but, uh, I, I, one of the things that is amazing to me, and I think we, we get some of this summed up at the end of chapter two is that Christ as an infinite being has a finite experience and an infinite experience simultaneously, mm -hmm. um, so that he can fully understand how how difficult the finite experience we are currently going through is while at the exact same time seeing what we become, how it all works out. And so again, we can't understand that it's beyond our ability in our current state to understand. But if we're going to look at those horizons, it's worth thinking about uh, how God and Christ really see us as you're saying and what we become. And that in some ways, I mean, I believe that, Probably right now you're an exalted being, Dan. Just you and I can't see that. But if you're an exalted being, you transcend time. So you are that already. In the same way that Christ suffered the an infinite atonement. So while the way we measure time, we can say, okay, it was on this date that he did that. It's infinite. So it was always in place. So Adam could be forgiven even before Christ suffered it the way we measure time, because that that event transcends time. Yeah, this is the crazy stuff. And th this is where I have to be careful in class that I don't go absolutely uh, bonkers. Yeah, with the students, and I'm sure right? it, but, we just lost a ton of people, I'm sure. But anyway, <laughs> like, okay, now they're getting nuts. But, but what I tried to point point out that rules of space time, I tell my students, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna take you about 20 minutes into to do a deep dive into some Star Trek type stuff, right? Yeah. Space time just doesn't apply the same way with God. And our experience right now is one of where, for instance, Speed of light's the fastest you can go. That's our speed limit. And time always moves forward the same way. But those rules don't apply to God. It makes him what is called uh, in, in, among some like physics terminology. He's, oh, great. Give me a second as I remember the term now. It's, um, he's non-local. Mm. The idea of locality is that everything seems to somehow connect with itself, right? Physics, quantum entanglement is a non-local thing. doesn't matter where the, and those particles are and how they're separated. They can be entangled instantly, right? Well, the rules of space and time don't work for God. He's non-local. And it's very hard for us who are localized beings where the rules of space and time are the defining features of our cosmos can understand what it's like to be a non-local being. Yeah. But here... For me, Latter-day Saints have a unique perspective on this. Again, it's not like people are stupid, 
right? People in the ancient world recognized this local, non-local problem and simply made it into God's a different type of being. <clears throat> we'll never be like that. But for Latter-day Saints, he's the same type of being. He's just in a different state of being. Yeah. And that means the state that he's in, there's a level of, as you've said, comparability that you can, you can comprehend God in some fashion. It takes his help. You need the Holy Ghost to do it according to Moses, right? But yeah. you can comprehend that experience because you're the same type. It's just the state of being is radically different. Yeah. Yep. But to, to bring it back to Hebrews, uh, yes, that's true. But he that sanctifieth and those who become sanctified are all one. That's the beauty is there isn't distinctions of this divine community. You really can become one with God. You really can do that. And it's thanks to Christ. Yep. And and I think some of As, that is encapsulated at, at, there at the end of chapter two. Right? And I think you wanted to talk about those verses, if I remember right. But yeah, uh, so I'm not. So, yeah. So back to verse 11, for both he that sanctified and they who are sanctified are all one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now, our pronoun, this is where the pronouns get the trickiest. Who exactly is that he? For which cause he is not ashamed to call these brethren? Who? You've well, got two so choices. So far, our answer is uh, all of the above, right? Right. It's You can look at it and read it. It is Jesus Christ. You can read it as God the Father. And that's where I come back to this perspective. We look at God in such an exalted state that we go, this is just never. But from his perspective, from an eternal perspective, he may very well look at us and go, you're my brethren. Right? Yep. Both children and brethren. And then, yeah, right? And, and then you get, at least for me beautiful, supernal passages because the writer then begins to quote some verses, but places them in the mouth of this being to demonstrate that this being doesn't see you as less than does that, do you get what I'm saying by that? Mm -hmm. For he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all one for which cause he's not ashamed to call us brethren as let me show you by these quotations, right? So we're now supposed to read the pronoun I in these verses as whoever this is that is sanctifying. And so verse 12, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Okay. So if we read that I as Jesus Christ, then he's talking maybe about how I will praise you before all of these sanctified ones, right? We're, I'm putting myself in the same category as the sanctified ones. I sanctify they're sanctified, but we're all one, and we all praise you, God the Father. I'll sing your praises to all of them. But if the I is God the Father, then we have implications of a much wider divine community hmm. in which you could say, I, God the Father, will declare thy name, you, one of those that are sanctified, unto my brethren. And I don't know who God the Father's brethren are. Other than we just said also it's us, but yeah. Right. You get what I'm saying by that? Yeah, I, yes, I do. Yeah. There's, there's just, there, there, who knows who all is in this community right. that goes beyond our what God has revealed anything to us about. That's exactly right. Though, intriguingly, in 1844, the last three or four sermons of Joseph, he seems to have been going towards this. Yeah. What is God's community that he's a part of? I, I get that when we think it, when we think of what he calls the economy of God as everything with God is the highest and the pinnacle and all the communities that come below it. But beginning in about February of 1844, Joseph begins to suggest, guess what? 
God probably also had a father too. And if he had a father, then there's a divine community that he's a part of. Like if I'm a family and my brothers and sisters become divine beings too, now I've got them as a community as well as the children, right? And so who's God the father's brother? Who's God the father's best friend? Who's God the father's father? This It seems like Joseph was just starting to grapple with that, but not fully uh, either either not fully getting answers yet or not fully ready to share those answers. You can see in June of 1844, this is his probably most detailed version. And I know some find it problematic, but one of the the things he says is, I'll give you more about this later. (laughs) And there's no later. There's no No. later, but we have a hint of it. And it certainly is made, you can make sense of it in our, um, our Latter-day Saint doctrinal understanding of what a God is. Right. It again, this is the furthest areas of our theology, for lack of a better term. We have no more information beyond this. Yep. But we're about the only ones that can go this far in our theology. Yeah. Yep. And 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 that's profound. So the idea that uh, either way, what we have to me is an idea that God the Father sees from an eternal perspective, and this entire plan is couched in that perspective. And we lose sight of that. We forget it. Back to this, this the monotony of just good living. We forget this is the perspective that this plan fits within. And it's vast and huge and cosmic in scope and awesome and beautiful that he reveals it to us this way. This shouldn't yeah. be daunting to anyone. It should be just fill you with just excitement. Amen. Amen. Right. And, and, and then, maybe, oh, go ahead. Oh, no. And then I was going to say, and then to your point, you get these references that talk about how Christ, this divine being, came down and took on mortality, as is pointed out there in verse 17 and 18, and becomes our high priest, willing to experience all things so that he might succor us, which takes us back to the ch- the verses in Alma 7. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it is. It's incredible talking about a divine, infinite being that came down and into this finite experience and suffered all so that he could sucker. That's it's right. incredible stuff. And makes no distinction. Again, I'm always left with verse 11. He that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all one. Yep. Right. The adversary, according to the book of Moses, wanted to make that distinction. I will be the first, I'll be greatest, and we're going to have gradations, right? I will always be better than. You can find plenty of places in the scriptures where God is clearly greater than all of us, even the greatest of all. But you really can't find references where he says, I'm better than you. And it's that eternal perspective. He makes no distinction. I don't really care how you're sanctified. Whether you're the sanctifier or whether you got sanctified, you're sanctified. And there's no real big distinction between the two. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there are plenty of places where he reminds us that given the current state, his ways are higher than our ways, or he mm-hmm. says, you know, who made man? Uh, and this is all designed to remind us that we need to come to him. But I think that's because it's only in coming to him that we can achieve the exaltation that he has in mind for us, which is then the brethren idea that you're just talking about. Right. Which which is exactly why between those two things, the, Christ, the fact that Christ came down and that God wants to sanctify us at all to have this 
intimate equal relationship. That's something I've been thinking about and talking about a, a lot lately. He wants this kind of relationship, such a, a, the kind of deep relationship that is only possible when you are of the same nature, right? You can't have that mm-hmm. same kind of relationship mm-hmm. if it's a hierarchy relationship. That's that's a that's not the most intimate relationship. The most intimate relationship is well, we could use it in terms of of uh, marriage, right? It's when you are full and equal partners, right? That's uh, that's the covenant relationship that God always compares our relationship with Him to as a marriage relationship, and it's, it's because of all of that that we can get to and and maybe we come back to this later, or maybe we're about to wrap up. I don't know, but. Um, at the end of chapter four is one of my favorite verses anywhere. And I think it's because of this exact thing we're talking about. This is what God sees in us. This is what God wants for us. This is why he sent his son. All of that is so that verse 16 of chapter four, let us therefore come boldly unto mm-hmm. the throne of grace. And and he's been making high priest uh, references and so on. So I think that the image he wants you to have is the the mercy seat or seat of atonement or the yep. Ark of the Covenant, right? Which is indicative of when you come into God's presence, because it's in mm-hmm. the Holy of Holies in the temple, but it also mercy, covenant, uh, atonement are all wrapped up in there. And that's why you can come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's just one of the most powerful verses anywhere, I think. The idea, I mean, yes, we need to come in supplication, and yes, we need godly sorrow for our sins, and we need the humility to know that we are not, um, we're not uh, able to do this on our own, but we can come boldly to ask for it because it's what he wants us to do. It's, right. there, it's the whole reason for everything is so that we can come to his throne for grace. And we're just silly when I understand it. I've felt this way. Satan wants us all to feel this way, but we're just silly when we feel like, no, I can't go to God. I'm not worthy. Mm -hmm. No, that's what the whole point was. So that when you're not worthy, you'll come to him and seek his grace and obtain mercy. That's exactly right. No, this chapter four, same, same. I, I use these verses almost in every, uh, every course that I teach, just because I think it's important to know that the gospel is meant to bring you back into the presence of God. But as I point out, the atonement of Jesus Christ made it possible not just to enter back into the presence of God, but how to do it, right? How to get back into the presence, how to do it when you do enter in the presence of God. That that boldly, that to me is one of the most powerful gifts the atonement provides. Boldness doesn't mean irreverence, and it doesn't mean disrespectful, right? No, no or but arrogant. It, no, but it does mean confident. It does mean that you're assured, that you know you belong to be there. And the atonement of Christ to me makes it possible that we can return to the presence of God and know that we belong there. Yeah, That's, that's very profound. I, we've talked about some really big, heady things, right? But but again, I don't want to go. That shouldn't. That shouldn't be daunting. That shouldn't make anyone afraid. That shouldn't make anyone fearful. Christ makes it possible for you to do this with boldness, right? I mean, the the commandment that He gave back in um, Matthew, "Be ye perfect." We get freaked out about that. But my response is, why would God give you a commandment that you didn't think you could keep? That should <laughs> fill you with hope that at some level you can pull this off, right? Yep. Yeah, and, now, and and, and he, it, that phrase is even in the idea of becoming perfect, it's even in Hebrews, right? Yep, so, 
That's exactly it. That's part of this process. Christ makes it possible for you to become perfect. And and as you probably teach, and as most hopefully most people know now through the New Testament and whatever study guides they've got, that word perfect, that Greek word teleos, really means to become whole or complete or finish, right? Yeah. And so and so when well, we and it comes about- from the, the Hebrew word tamim or Arabic tamam or whichever, which means that same thing. It's it's kind of uh to to be finished and it has covenant connotations uh and state of being connotations as part sure. of it as well well and i'll i'll add another hebrew word too i think it's tied to kadosh i think it's yeah. tied to the word holy um in leviticus what is it 17 19 you have the commandment to be holy even as your god is holy that couplet sounds remarkably similar to Christ's be perfect, even as your God is to heaven is perfect. Right. And and holiness, that kadosh also kadosh versus kodash, but kadosh carries with that sense of dynamic activity. Like and, and, and the word holy, the English word holy, it comes from the same root where you get the word whole or health. Yeah. Right. So, so the English word holy carries it with the sense of being whole, not just separated. And, and right, because that's how we sometimes think of Kadosh or Kadish, the root, as a separation from. But when Tyndale's translating that, he looks and says, uh, the better word for that is to become whole. Be, be, become whole, become complete, become a being who makes things whole, who completes things. Right. Finish this, be a finisher. Which- which, in fact, I would argue so that the, the separation connotations, I think, mean you get separated from the world, but the idea is that then you become godly, right? You, you're, right. you're being less worldly so you can become more godly so that at some point you become whole or, in other words, godly, fully godly. Right. That's right. So exactly right now right. I'm trying to become more godly knowing that at some point the more becomes whole. That's exactly right. I'm incomplete right now. Yeah. Right. And that's and that's the best way to think about this. I'm incomplete, but I can do things where I become more and more complete. And more importantly, I can help others become complete. And and so when you look at chapter four, when it starts talking about Christ as this great high priest, though that's what the high priest did. He completed people at the day of atonement, right? All that year's sins or impurities or uncleanliness, he fixes that through this process, right? Through the through the rituals of the Day of Atonement. He makes things clean, makes yeah. it possible for you to become whole at least for the next eight hours until the next mistakes and the day after the Day of Atonement. Yeah, but, but Christ did that for us. And he was whole and perfect. So as a whole and perfect being, he paid a price that made it possible for you and I to be whole and complete. And that's that fills me with that confidence. I can I can approach the throne of grace boldly, right? Yep. When I teach this to my students, the story that I go to is with, and I never get it right, Joseph F. Smith. Is he was he before Joseph Fielding Smith? Yeah, he's care. Joseph Fielding Smith. Joseph F. Smith. Yeah. So he's the one that gets called on a mission when he's about 16 to go to Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah, that's right? Joseph F. Smith. Suffers really in many ways some crippling insecurities and doubts about himself. So yeah. young, so yeah. separated. Well, and he, and he's, I mean, he's already gone through so much with the death yeah. of his father, Hiram, and so on. So, I yeah. mean, he's just gone through separation after separation after separation. Right. And so. And will we, his whole life, actually. But. Really will. Right. He's going to deal with those uh, those mental challenges. There's something to that. And that's another yeah. side. Well, and, and and just loss after loss. And that's why Section 138 comes is because he's just suffered so many losses. Right. Right. right? Yeah. So 
So his dream that he has while he's a missionary in Hawaii, he dreams that he's got to go to the temple and he can't find his temple clothes. Yeah. Right. So he's searching all over the apartment to find those temple clothes, finds them, runs to the temple. But now he's late for whatever the meeting was in his dream. He never tells us what the meeting was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm his, not sure he even knows in the dream. He just yeah, knows he's it's supposed just to be a dream. That's yeah. exactly yeah. right. It's just a dream. But when he gets there, his uncle Joseph Smith is looking down on him and apparently yeah. looking down on him, like, right, looking down and disapprovingly says, You're late. And his response is, Yes, but I'm clean. And just walks right by the prophet and goes into the temple. Yeah. That's boldness. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's boldness. And, and you that's know, the, oh, go ahead. No, go for it. No, 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 no. But I'm going to go a different place. Well, I was just going to say that's the type of boldness that Christ makes possible. Yeah. Christ makes it possible for you and I to be clean. He's our great high priest. He went before us, made it possible for us to become clean. And when we know that we are, that's bold, yeah. right? Doctrine and Covenants 121 talks about how if you do these things, then your confidence will wax bold as the doctrines of heaven distill upon your soul. I mean, this confidence is a real part of this gospel. Again, this is what Alan means. Do you see with the eye of faith? Do you imagine yourself these things? Right? The brother of Jared gains that confidence. Once he realizes he's not going to die because he saw something that he shouldn't, he realizes, well, then I can see the whole thing. So show it to me. Yeah. That's bold. That's confident. And it's not irreverent and it's not disrespectful, but it is bold. Yeah. In the way we're asked to be. So yeah. that does tie in and, and maybe uh, this is a good way to wrap things uh, up, uh, although we've had lots of great wrapping up already. But so if we go somewhere else, that's fine too. But uh, I was going to say uh, all the stuff we've just been talking about, like the whole thing reminds me, actually, I'll give a shout out to my wife, Julianne, that um, when this was several years ago, she made a, a, a big and I thought incredibly profound Facebook post. And it was in the context, it was like, I don't know, a while after Greatest Showman had come out and everyone was singing, this is me. And there was this whole big thing about this is me don't just accept me for who i am and i'm going to accept me for who i am and there really is something to that but what she wrote was this post called this is not me um and it was about you know i i know the good and the bad in me right now and i'm fine with that but i'm not satisfied with it like i don't feel bad about who i am right now but i'm not satisfied with it because i know this actually isn't me the real me is what christ is going to make me and and what i'm going to become and so I can be um, not, not torn up about who I am now. I can be con happy with that, but not content. I want to come to Christ and become the real me. And I think that's exactly what we're talking about here. Come boldly, be made brethren, be sanctified, become these eternal, infinite beings uh, we can look forward to that rather than being, and so we, we can come boldly because we don't have to feel guilty about our inadequacies, but we shouldn't be satisfied with this. Uh, and we don't have to be because Christ has made it possible uh, through his father's plan and his father's power to become so much more, uh, in fact, to become godly. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. So with that being said, Dan, why don't you uh, give us your your final teachings, final thoughts, or where, where else would you like us to go? Okay. Well, I'm just going to develop right off of what you said, right? Julianne's post, right? Um, 
I, I don't remember who it was. It was just a couple of years back, but someone in conference talked about that concept of righteous discontent or whatever mm-hmm. it is, right? That that it doesn't mean we have to beat ourselves up. Yeah, but godly we discontent, have. I think, is the phrase. Godly, godly discontent. discontent. That sounds yeah. right. Right. And I can't remember which sister it was that presented that idea, but I thought it was profound when I heard it then too. This idea that we, we shouldn't settle and that maybe there's something to the experiences that we are having. In fact, having just talked about how Christ suffered all these things, chapter five then goes into, to me, and again, I've used the word profound a lot, but I think that's because the book of Hebrews is just incredible, yeah. is one of the best descriptions of the function and purpose of the priesthood that, I, that I've ever come across. And it begins in verse one, right? So talking about high priests, the, the writer then points out, for every high priest taken from men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's explaining why we have the priesthood. Now, in our dispensation over the past few years, we've learned a lot more about priesthood, priesthood power and priesthood authority. So I'll go with anyone who exercises priesthood power, right? And perhaps has the authority to do so, whether that means they hold keys or not. So these principles about the priesthood hold true for men and women in the church, even though it's even though it's gender specific here to men. I think it just holds thanks to President Oaks and many of the teachings that he's given us, yeah. right? And and President Nelson in some recent ones as and well. And President Nelson as well. This is just where our understanding is: is that all members can experience this priesthood power, and therefore, in yeah. that sense, they are all a part of the priesthood, right? Yeah. An order. Everyone who is set apart in any way or blessed in any way is given priesthood power to do what they are asked to do, whether that be a calling or whether that be you receive a blessing or parenthood or whatever. That is exactly right. So so we can look at verse one and go, even though it's talking about men and specifically the high priest, we can understand that it's talking about anyone who exercises priesthood power and therefore why there is a priesthood, right? An order of those who have this power. And that purpose is to offer both gifts and sacrifices. But it goes further in explaining what maybe those gifts and sacrifices for sins are in verse 2. Why does he have people with priesthood power? So they can have compassion upon the ignorant or uh, and on them that are out of the way. So priesthood provides compassion, right? Mm-hmm. And those two groups, the ignorant and the out of the way, those that fall behind the cracks, the marginalized, the lost, whatever you want to call them. So then we can ask ourselves, how does priesthood exercise compassion, particularly for these two primary groups of people, the ignorant and the out of the way? But what really strikes me about the verse is that it goes on to explain why those who hold priesthood power are able to have that compassion. And it says, for that he himself also is encompassed by infirmity. In other words, the individual who exercises the priesthood, that high priest, including Christ, but anyone who exercises priesthood power in any given calling, as you pointed out, is able to have that compassion because they themselves have been encompassed by infirmity, right? That And this would now suggest that the pain and the sufferings and the trials that we have have a function. We're not perfect, but they do allow us to experience that infirmity, and that infirmity allows us to have compassion. Right. And yes. that is what allows us to bring gifts and offerings and sacrifices to God. Those gifts and sacrifices being the people themselves. Yes. So, so what it suggests here is that this our sinful state or the state, this imperfect state that we're in, makes it possible for us to have compassion 
the same type of compassion Christ himself had since he was encompassed about by infirmities, right? He suffered all pain and, and uh, suffering and entropy, as I call it elsewhere. In fact, going back to verse 15, chapter four, uh, four, he is in fact the most unclean that has ever been in the existence of this cosmos. Yes. Not for his own doing, but because he paid the price of all of it. Yeah, because he took it all upon us. He took all sin upon all him. It, right? And still came out clean. Yep. And by virtue of that, then we can take that example and go, I can show compassion on these groups by virtue of this. So the writer wants to point out that you and I are not maybe perfect yet, but we can be made perfect, right? Going through the same type of scenario in some ways. We too are encompassed by infirmities and those give us compassion. My example, of course, is my wife. We experienced a couple of miscarriages, mm -hmm. right? And she really wanted another child and, and it was hard. It was hard. And we don't talk much about miscarriages, right? Though they happen pretty commonly and it's a pretty common trauma that ex many people experience. Yeah. Including well, us and yeah. Yeah. Uh, most people I know. Yeah. Most people, you know, but we don't talk about it. Yeah. Well, we had a member in our ward who she was much younger and this was their first child or was going to be their first child and she miscarried and it just broke her heart. Well, my wife was on the compassionate service committee of the ward. And when she had that, having just experienced the miscarriage, she didn't know this woman really at all, but she called her and they talked for hours and went out for lunch. And the woman came up later and told my wife, I needed that. You got me through this. And my, and my thinking of that is, yeah, you did. You experienced that infirmity and could have compassion. Yeah. Right. It's absolutely this, true. That's what it is. And I'm always struck by this suggesting then to the men in our church that we say compassionate service is a relief society responsibility. These verses suggest it's a priesthood responsibility. Right. right? And it's through all and of this. And certainly, actually, anyone who's on the compassionate service committee is operating under a priesthood yes. responsibility, but Most it doesn't mean they're the only ones that should be doing this. Right. Right. This compassionate service is a priesthood responsibility. Yeah. And that's just simply what these verses point out. And it's that. Then, In fact, it's that, a covenant responsibility. Yes. Yes. Since those are Which tied is together. also priesthood power because we receive covenants through the power of the priesthood and we have covenanted to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort and so mm -hmm. on and so on. Yeah. Okay. And now we know why, because we ourselves mourned yeah. and needed comfort. Right. Yeah. And yep. it's so that, that we process can suffer. through chapter five. That's right. So we can sucker. I, I look at the, the Adam and Eve and why they're going to experience. When you look at the consequences of eating that fruit, they seem not harsh, but they, they're negative, right? But both Adam and Eve are going to experience sorrow. That's what you're told. Yep. But sorrow is, makes it possible to have compassion. Yeah. And I look at this and I go, these are two great gifts. They're not going to be fun to experience, but these are gifts that Adam and Eve will experience. Sorrow making it possible for them to have compassion upon the ignorant and the out of the way yeah. to sucker. So just as one example of that for Adam and Eve, and uh, I don't want to go too far along these lines, but I know almost everyone I know right now has a child that is not uh, as faithful as they would like or something along, and it's painful. Well, I'm here to tell you, if anyone understands that, it's Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. right? <laughs> most of their children went away from their teachings, their profound, profound teachings. Most of their children went away from them 
I have the feeling that Adam and Eve can sucker all of us. Um, yes. And and just knowing that, I hope, helps that to happen a little bit. And of course, Christ also felt all of that and uh, also had one of his closest followers turn away mm-hmm. and so on. So uh, the, uh, this suckering business because of experience is a real thing. And And to me, there's an interesting juxtaposition with that. Um, I was talking with our colleague Brad Wilcox about a year ago, uh, because I, I don't have a, I don't have a child necessarily that's strayed, but I've had a child that struggles, like many yeah. of us have. And uh, interestingly, if I'm getting real personal, I went to prayer with this, and the response I got from the Lord was, "Yeah, I know, I know. You should know He's also my child." Ah, and I've I'm, had that same experience right? so many times. I'm well aware of what's happening. Yeah go by my time scale. And that's the juxtaposition here is our mortal experience leads us to compassion. But what we ultimately need is that eternal view, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like I said, I was talking with Brad and uh, about some of these and I just go, I'm just curious because he's in the young men's presidency, right? Yeah. I'm just curious. What do you guys discuss? I mean, are, are you concerned with the youth of the church? And he's like, Oh, most definitely. He says, but I'll tell you something, Dan, I am surprised at how much there is an air of confidence and peace. Hmm. The church leadership has this eternal perspective. I, to, to your point, I think sometimes I'm going to be talking about Paul with my students in my New Testament class and the road to Emmaus. And Christ has this observation to Paul. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Yeah. That's not a question, and nor is it really a rebuke. It's yeah, just an observation. Yeah. Yeah. Like what Paul, you're doing is tough on you. That's got to be exhausting. Yeah. Right? And and from an eternal perspective, I think that's how God sees a lot of this. Just sometimes that head shake, maybe a wry smile, and just go, Yeah, you made that a lot more difficult than it had to be. <laughs> you you want to do this the hard way? Okay. That's your call. <laughs> yeah. That's your call. But yeah. But it'll work. And, and that he, so we have this, this mortal experience that allows us to have compassion and be aware of other people's suffering and pain and an eternal perspective that allows us to put it all into a perspective. And I know that's hard because we're mortal and we're going through this as parents who are dealing with children that have different challenges that break our heart. There's an eternal perspective that can give you peace and comfort, right? And joy, even as the the experience itself gives you the compassion. I know my teaching has changed as I now see challenges that some students had that, that my own children had that I didn't recognize. Yeah. Right. And I've changed the way I do some of my class and maybe some of the lessons that I teach because now I'm more aware of things that I wasn't aware of before. So my suffering brings about compassion in my teaching. But my eternal perspective is what I keep getting my ans- in my prayers. Yeah, I agree. Or even in, I, I'll just say that uh, when I, I, some of my prayers have been like yours, uh, anguish, like, what do we do? What do we do? This is, you know, and I, I've had the exact same experience you, you say where like it's my child too. But I will say every blessing I've given those children, I end up with a feeling of confidence and peace. Yep. This is going to be too. all right. I am mighty to save. Let, let me, let me do this. Yep. I, 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 my, my response from uh, God has always been, you got to trust my timetable. 
You just have to trust my timetable. We're back to our discussion of time and it's radically different. And, but he's got it. And so, so he waits for us to mature. If we're going back to this idea of the eternal perspective, we're his brethren, we're his friends. We just have to get ourselves to the point where we recognize that. And that's where maybe the last thing I'll say is you look at chapter five and chapter six, notice that chapter six begins by going, therefore, let us go on to perfection, right? This juxtaposition between the eternal relationship, the eternal structure and and organization of the cosmos of our relationship with God, how he sees things coupled with our mortal experience of how we see things. These two things can lead to our perfection. Our mortal experience can lead to our compassion, which helps us become perfect. And the eternal perspective of which God sees things allows us to obtain that perfection. And so therefore the writer's like, so let's do it. Let's just go on to perfection. Amen. Amen. That's the perfect note to add on. Let's let's trust in Christ and go on to perfection. Right. Uh, wonderful. Well, thank you, Dan. I sure appreciate that. I mean, there's so much in Hebrews. We could talk for hours and hours and hours and and not finish. But uh, this has been a great and fun discussion. And, and we hope for our audience that uh, if it's been a good discussion for you, that you'll invite someone else to listen to it and uh, and see how it can bless them. So thank you. And and we'll have you back on soon, Dan. Or actually, uh, we've recorded this early. Maybe you've, uh, you've probably already been on by the time we have this now that I think about it. So uh, yeah, we'll introduce you a couple of times. Anyway, thank you. No problem. That was fun. That's fun. It's always fun to just sit and discuss scripture. Good, clean fun. Yeah. Yep. All righty. Take care. Okay. See ya. I'm just really excited. I want you to know that uh, next week, as we finish up the book of Hebrews, we're going to have Phil Allred on with us. Uh, you've probably heard Phil many times. He's one of my more popular guests uh, and just a dear friend. And, and it's a great discussion. You're going to love hearing from Phil and myself as we talk more about the book of Hebrews. 